This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And our next story is a part of our Rule of Law series, where we bring you stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. Here's Alex Cortez with today's story. Harvey Silverglate is one of the top lawyers in America whose mission is to protect our constitutional freedoms, and he's the author of Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. If you've committed a crime, one of the easy ways of getting out of paying for it, is, and I mean if you've really committed a crime, one of the easy ways of getting out of paying for it is to agree to be a witness for the government against somebody else. And this whole system where prosecutors reward witnesses by saying, if you testify that the person we are prosecuting now committed this crime, did this act, did this deed, we will not prosecute you. Or we will be lenient we won't send you to prison. If a witness has made money in a scam, part of the deal, his prosecution is the witness is allowed to keep the money, is not going to be forced to by fine or restitution to give it back. In one case, the defendant, a woman named Sonia Singleton, fought against this system by claiming that when the feds would pay for cooperation with promises of leniency, it was a form of witness bribery. It was illegal. And that therefore, the prosecution could not go forward because the government had engaged in bribery of its witnesses. The judge in that case didn't agree, but the Court of Appeals agreed. And a three-judge panel of the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals threw out the conviction. The Department of Justice went berserk. And what they did was they appealed to the full panel. They appealed the panel's decision to the full membership of the Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. Cases are usually heard by three-judge panels, but there could be 10, 20, 30 judges sitting on that court, three of whom hear any individual case. But they asked the full membership of the Tenth Circuit to rehear the case and to reverse the three-judge panel. And the government's argument to the what's called on-bank, E-N-B-A-N-C, the full bench means, and what the government argued to the full bench was not that this wasn't witness bribery, because of course, you and I and everybody understands, of course it's witness bribery. The witnesses were bribed and threatened and coerced to testify as they were testifies against the target of the government prosecution. Of course it's witness bribery. But what they argued was, it's the way it's always been done, and the system would fall apart. They couldn't prosecute people if they didn't have the power to make promises of leniency to cooperating witnesses. 
the panel never said that it wasn't witness bribery or coercion. It simply said, well, in order for the system to survive, this is necessary, and we are going to reverse the three-judge panel, and we're going to allow the prosecutors to continue doing this. The case was U.S. versus Singleton, S-I-N-G-L-E-N-T-O-N. And the way the courts justified allowing prosecutors to give inducements and rewards to witnesses and why it's not actually witness bribery is because the courts have said that if Congress intended for this conduct by prosecutors to be uh, illegal intended to outlaw it, they would have said so clearly. This is, of course, absurd because Congress in federal statutes, Congress very rarely says anything clearly. The statutes are dangerous for we citizens precisely because they're so vague and broad. And yet, with regard to something as important as whether paying a witness or giving a witness reduced sentence or immunity it should be considered to be witness bribery and held a corrupt act, the courts say, well, if Congress meant to make this illegal, it would have said so with clarity. It's sort of a sick joke. And isn't a rule of law, but a rule of mind reading. We think they meant this, not that, but we don't exactly know. That was, to me, an outrageous development, because what it did was it allowed the government to continue with this system of paying witnesses. If I would ever offer any any inducement to a witness of mine, a defense witness, to testify, I would be indicted for witness bribery in a, in a nanosecond. And yet prosecutors do it day in and day out. And the prosecutors get away with all this in the name of, in the name of being able to conduct a system of justice. Well, it's not a system of justice. It's a system of injustice. It's a system of witness bribery. It is thoroughly corrupt. It really needs to be started from scratch. It's a very harsh comment on the federal criminal justice system that they allow cooperating witnesses to keep the money that these witnesses scammed from innocent people. And you've been listening to Harvey Silverglate and the subject, my goodness, it's just such a good one. And he's such a good legal storyteller. And his book is Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. And, well, there's just got to be a better way than bribing someone to give their testimony. And that's what it is. It's bribery. And the idea that these people wouldn't testify without the bribe, well, maybe that's the problem, right? Maybe that's the problem. And that's what Harvey Silverglate was trying to get after. Again, three felonies a day, how the feds target the innocent, a part of our rule of law series here on Our American Story.
wear the starry crown. Good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down. Let's go down. Come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down. Down in the river to pray. This is Our American Stories, and our next story is a story about love and family, faith and freedom. It's brought to us by our own Greg Hengler and the good folks at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center in Church Creek, Maryland. Let's take a listen. On July 4th, 1776, a marvelous experiment in democracy was conceived. With a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, its noble, if imperfect, parents pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to bring to fruition this heroic idea. A new government in which all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But decades later, Deep within the backbone of the American economy, a large protruding tumor was causing unimaginable misery. Here's historian James Horton. By 1840, cotton was the most valuable thing this entire nation exported. No, it was more valuable than everything else this nation exported put together. By 1860, the worth of slaves the dollar value of slaves was greater than the dollar value of all the banks, all the railroads, all the manufacturing facilities of this nation put together. Slavery was no sideshow in American history. It was the main event. Slave owners have rightfully earned their wicked reputation. Strangely, the largest pro-slavery institution, the one that made slavery law and kept it in order, has consistently been absent from the abolition educator's list of evildoers. Don't forget that these people were held on the plantation by more than just the white families on the plantation. That ultimately, if you had tried to defeat the institution of slavery, you would have had to defeat the power of the plantation, the power of the local government, the power of the state government, and ultimately the power of the national government. That slavery was protected by the full force of the United States of America so that when you think about people running away or people striking out against the institution, they are in, embarking on a pretty ambitious uh, journey. That journey was conducted on tracks. Those tracks were part of a system of escape that became known as the Underground Railroad. But like grape nuts, the Underground Railroad was neither underground, nor was it a railroad. Here's Harriet Tubman's scholar, James McGowan. There was an often told story that it started around the mid-1830s after the building of the railroads uh, started in this country. Uh, Some slave catchers were chasing a slave, and I believe the area was Ohio. And uh, the slave ran away into a wooded area. And uh, the slave catchers followed him there, and uh, he suddenly disappeared. It was as if he ran away on an underground railroad. Well, it became a joke, but the joke caught on. 
when the uh, abolitionists and the anti-slavery people got involved with helping slaves escape, they took that term on. And uh, those who were helping slaves escape, they called conductors. These were the people who went right into slave territory and uh, got the slaves and brought them out. And when they brought them out, they brought them to places where they could get food and shelter. And these places were houses or barns where abolitionists and anti-slavery people were at. And they called these houses stations. And the people who lived in these houses and who provided this uh, information and this stuff, they called them station masters. And then others who became involved, like they, for example, they contributed money. They called them stockholders. And those who watched, they called them pilots. Any term that they used in the railroad, they used to describe the, the people who worked in the Underground Railroad. In an effort to survive and maintain better lives, enslaved Americans turned to someone they already trusted and relied upon throughout their lives. Steal away to Jesus. Pennsylvania had been chartered by William Penn in 1682 and heavily settled by the Quakers, a Christian organization who had condemned the practice of slavery. With the religious revivals of the 17 and 1800s, called Great Awakenings, abolition spread into Delaware. Here's historian Bradley Skelcher. There was a belief that American colonists had lost their spirituality and religious itinerant ministers traveled around this region preaching the gospel. As a part of that great awakening, more and more people began to encourage their fellow church members to question the morality of owning their fellow human beings. In the end, enslaved Americans ran not so much from the cruelty of their master, but toward that most fundamental of all human rights, freedom. As Americans, we want to think of ourselves as really priding ourselves on personal freedom and priding ourselves on being willing to help other people achieve freedom. And so the Underground Railroad in that regard becomes the all-American story, the story of those who refuse to accept slavery and those who refuse to accept the denial of other people's freedom. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know Prepare yourself. We are about to go back in time and walk in the footsteps of one of America's greatest heroes. And I prayed to God to make me strong and able to fight. And that's what I've always prayed for ever since. Harriet Tubman. We all know her name, but who was this woman? Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in 1822 and raised in eastern Maryland with four brothers and four sisters in a 20 by 20 foot slave cabin with no beds and a dirt floor. She suffered decades of beatings, neglect and fear and saw three of her four sisters sold on the auction block, never to see them again. As strong as she was, she was also fragile. 
after getting her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by a slave owner at a village store, Harriet struggled with frequent seizures and blinding headaches. Name your price. In 1849, Harriet's slave master, Edward Brodus, recognized her diminished capacity and tried unsuccessfully to sell her. I don't know, Edward. She don't look too healthy to me. In spite of this, she began to pray for her master. Harriet's faith was the foundation that everything in her life was built on. Not an abstract idea of Christianity, but an active, constant communication with the Almighty. She sought her master's conversion. Oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. I prayed all night long for my master till the first of March. And all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. One day, to her horror, she learned that she would be sent to a chain gang in the far south. The tone of her prayers shifted. So I began to pray. Oh, Lord, if you ain't never gonna change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out the way. Edward, let me help! Edward! Edward! The prayer proved prophetic. Tubman's 48-year-old master died suddenly one week after the prayer, and she was filled with remorse. Oh, I would give the world full of silver and gold if I had it to bring that poor soul back. I would give everything. But he was gone. I couldn't pray for him no more. There was one of two things I had a right to. Liberty or death. If I couldn't have one, I would have the other. And when we come back, more on the life of Harriet Tubman. This is Our American Stories. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me home. And we return to the story of Harriet Tubman. And by the way, you can catch all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's continue with the story. In 1849, at the age of 27, she heard the Lord's voice urging her to flee northward. 
after an initial attempt to escape failed when her two brothers lost courage and forced her to return. She set out again two days later by herself, hiding during daylight hours and traveling by night, fixing her eyes on the North Star for direction until she made it to Pennsylvania's free soil. This 100-mile escape on foot north through the Underground Railroad took a week. What makes Harriet so unique is that after she escaped, she did the unthinkable. She went back. Over 11 years, she made 13 return trips to the South and helped deliver over 300 family and friends to freedom. Yes, I made my way out of slavery and into the promised land. I boarded that train and found my freedom. But I realized straight away that my freedom meant nothing if my family wasn't free neither. That's why I come back, for my beloved, for my blood. And when I come back and my family can't make that train, I don't waste a trip. I bring friends and friends of friends back to the promised land. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track, and I never lost a passenger. Harriet never lost because, as she said, her God maintains a perfect record. In December 1850, Tubman executed her first mission, the rescue of her niece, Kasiah, and her two children, a son, and an infant daughter who were scheduled to be sold on the auction block. With the help of Kasaya's free husband, John, Harriet arranged an unexpected and daring escape. On the steps of the Dorchester County Courthouse in Maryland, the crowd gathered that day. Kasaya was led up the block in front of those old courthouse steps. The bidding started. Kasaya's husband, John, stood in the crowd. Their eyes met. And John raised his hand and bid on the woman and children he loved. John won the bid, but he had no money. God must have been watching. Just then, the auctioneer up and decided to go to lunch. What's more, he forgot to chain Kasiah up. Psst, now go, go. Kasiah, John, and their children hid in the nearby house of a white woman. They waited till nightfall and sprinted to the waterfront. Together, they boarded a small boat. Mother, father, and children in a silent sailboat crossing the wide Chesapeake. They hid in Baltimore five weeks until Harriet got them train tickets to Philadelphia. 
they eventually made it all the way to Canada, safe from the long arm of slavery. She always made rescue attempts in the winter, but avoided going into plantations. Instead, she waited for escaping slaves, to whom she had sent messages, to meet her eight or ten miles away. Slaves would leave plantations on Saturday nights, and because of the Sunday Sabbath, they wouldn't be missed until Monday morning. Only then did their reward signs get posted, which would then be taken down immediately by men Tubman had hired. Tubman also carried a gun, a six-shooter, and was not afraid to use it. She felt her revolver offered some protection from the slave catchers and their dogs. And Tubman demanded strict obedience from her fugitives. A slave who returned to his master would likely be forced to reveal information that would compromise her mission. One time, a man gave out the second night. His feet were so swollen. He couldn't go any further. He'd rather go back and die if he must. I said, I was going to lay a bullet in him if he didn't move. Henry, get up. We's got to move on. Remember, Henry, dead Negroes tell no tales. When he heard that, (laughs) he jumped up right away and went as well as anybody. Henry made it to freedom. And years later, Harriet was asked whether she would actually kill a reluctant escapee. Yes, because if he was weak enough to give out, he'd be weak enough to betray us all and all who helped us. And do you think I let so many die just for one coward man? So the Lord said, go down. Harriet Tubman earned the nickname Moses because just as Moses followed the voice of God while leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, she too led so many of her people from bondage in the house of slavery to the promised land of freedom along the Underground Railroad. The world, see, don't make sense. It's broken. So the slaves, we take on another perspective. We see by faith. Our faith means everything. There's more to reality than a person's eyes can see. You hear this faith in the spiritual songs, a weeping, a praying, a pouring out of emotion and pain, and somehow of hope. Even though we enslaved chained, whipped. Hope still lives. She used spiritual songs as coded messages, warning escaping slaves of danger or directing them toward a safe path. Harriet felt God protected and hid her during the time she had to lie in a wet swamp or bury herself in a potato field. When God provided safe passage, she always gave him the glory. I heard God speaking to me, saw his angels, and I saw my dreams. 
there were times I knew things for they was going to happen. I could see trouble coming and I could go the other way. There was times I fell into sleep but was completely awake. More aware than when I was awake. Things I can't even describe, child. Things I can't even say. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Harriet Tubman's story, here on Our American Stories. final segment of this Harriet Tubman story. Let's pick up where we last left off. In one instance, in 1856, the word spread through the countryside, she's here! And four young men answered the call. What you men want is a bounty hunter. As they were making their escape, they saw posters with a $2,000 reward for their capture on them. As they made their way through the woods... Harriet suddenly stopped. God told me to stop, so I stopped. He told me to leave the road and turn left. We came to a stream, but no way across. The young men, they said it was too deep, the water too cold. And I said no such thing as too cold and walked in. Water made it up to my shoulder. But then I came out the other side. The boys followed. Later, Harriet learned that a group of desperate men seeking the $2,000 reward had been waiting on the path they were traveling and planned to seize them. If she had not responded to God's still small voice, they would have been captured. And the $40,000 reward slave owners posted for her capture was always in the back of her mind. Harriet learned about the posters, which described her age, height, and that she couldn't read or write. Once in a train station, Harriet heard two men talking about her. They were trying to decide if she was the woman in the poster. Harriet was carrying a book. She opened it and pretended to read. The men then decided that it couldn't be her. Tubman became a friend of many of the best-known abolitionists and their sympathizers. White religious crusader John Brown referred to her in his letters as one of the best and bravest persons on this continent, General Tubman as we call her. 
Here's professor of constitutional law, Paul Finkelman and James Horton. The people who are involved in the Underground Railroad are breaking a federal law. Uh, what they would have, of course, made the argument, and they did it all the time, is that there was a higher law, the law of God. It was dangerous to be involved with the Underground Railroad, no matter what color you were. I mean, there are white people who spent years of their lives in jail. Here's Tubman scholar Judith Bentley, historian Clara Small, and again, James McGowan discussing Tubman's relationship with one of the most prominent figures in the history of the Underground Railroad, a devout white Christian named Thomas Garrett. When she started going back to bring more people uh, out of the Eastern Shore, uh, she needed financial backing. She needed places to stay. She needed contacts, and Garrett was that, that contact. Thomas Garrett had money. He had social position. And as a result, he was given Harriet money. He also gave her uh, passageway and shoes, and clo- as well as clothing and food. He would tell this story in his letters to two ladies in Scotland who were sending money over to Harriet Tubman, how she came to his house and practically demanded money. She would say to him, for example, well, I know you've got money for me because God said so. And he would tease her. He would say, well, how do you know I got money for you, Harriet? You know, I give my money to most of the black people here in Wilmington, and I don't have any money. She said, oh, no, you've got money for me, and you've got shoes because God told me. And he would be nonplussed at her saying this, but he, he would have it. God bless you, Mr. Garrett said this of Harriet. I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And her faith in a supreme power truly was great. During the Civil War, Tubman served as a nurse, laundress, and spy with the Union forces. She taught freed black women how to make things that they could sell in order to earn a living. Harriet Tubman would not be satisfied until every person could experience true freedom. After the war, she made her home in Auburn, New York, and despite numerous honors, spent her last years in poverty until a white woman named Sarah Bradford visited Harriet and listened to her life story. In 1869, Sarah Bradford published Harriet's biography, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, and another in 1886, The Moses of Her People. All the money they earned went to Harriet. Finally, on March 10, 1913, the 93-year-old Harriet Tubman caught pneumonia and knew the end was near. She asked her friends and family to gather around her bed, as she had done so many times before. Harriet raised her voice and gave instruction to everyone. Sing, swing low, sweet chariot to me. The eyes of those in the room brimmed with tears, and the people tried to stifle sobs as they sang softly. Just as her friends and family sang the final verse, she whispered her final words, I go to prepare a place for you. Flags flew at half-mast in Auburn, She was buried with military honors in Fort Hill Cemetery in New York. 
Booker T. Washington delivered the eulogy. Many letters were found in Harriet's room after she passed. One letter had been refolded so many times that it had almost fallen apart. It was from the great leader of the abolitionist movement and Harriet's friend, Frederick Douglass. Here's what he wrote. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in the public, and I received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scared, and foot-sore bondmen and women whom you have let out of the house of bondage and whose heartfelt God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Here's Jay Meredith, whose great-great-grandfather owned the village store where Harriet Tubman got her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by the slave owner. Anybody that would know anything about Harriet Tubman would have to um, recognize her as a true American hero. And here is the main reason why, is that if you think about Harriet Tubman, you're going to see an African-American woman in 1849, okay, when women had no rights, black women had less than no rights. She was five feet tall. She was illiterate. Again, she was enslaved. And she was able to accomplish feats that nobody else could accomplish. And to me, how can you not admire somebody like that? You know, I mean, you've got a woman who has everything in the world going against her. Everything. And I tell people when they come in here, you know, whether you're white, whether you're black, no matter, even if you have prejudices, if you look at an individual like a Harriet Tubman, you know, you have to admire, even sitting here telling the story, it gives me goosebumps. It is here, through Harriet Tubman's work in the Underground Railroad, where we can see both fugitive and free Americans, white and black, drawn by a cause that compelled them to come together. There have been times in American history when we have been able to form alliances cross racial lines. The fact is, that we don't hear as much about that as we ought to. And it's important that we do, because it's awfully hard to imagine that we can form racial alliances in the 21st century unless we understand that there is a strong tradition that we can draw upon. And although there have always been hostilities, there have always been difficulties across racial lines, there have also always been some people who were able and willing to put their fortunes and their lives on the line for other people. And I think that's a tradition that we need to draw on. That's a tradition of the Underground Railroad. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Everybody say, roll, 
in heaven, Lord, for the year when Jordan rose. Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show, from the sports world to the arts world, from business, because my goodness, where would we be without inventors and innovators in American business, and straight down to faith leaders. And this is our very first story about, well, buildings and the spaces we live in and inhabit. And we bring you the story of a man who single-handedly changed the way America and the world looks at architecture. Here's Jesse Edwards with the story. Most Americans are at least somewhat familiar with the architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright. Even if by some chance you don't know his name, you've seen and probably admired his work on a calendar or in a magazine. Born in 1867, he designed over a thousand structures, 532 of which were completed. Wright believed in designing structures that were in harmony with humanity and its environment, a philosophy he called organic architecture. He was recorded in 1956 at the Plaza Hotel in New York City where he talked about his philosophies on architecture, society, culture, education, and music. He was well known for being outspoken, bombastic, a master of publicity, highly opinionated, and ruggedly individualistic a magnificently flawed and complex character. His father was a music teacher and a Baptist minister. My father taught me. He was a preacher, but he was first of all a musician and made his living, or tried to, teaching music later on. He never was able to support us by way of it, and his life was a kind of tragedy. But he taught me that a symphony was an edifice of sound, and that it was built, and I learned pretty soon that it was built by the same kind of mind in much the same way that a building is built. And when that came to me, I used to sit and listen to the only master that was immaculate in my, my listening was Beethoven. He was a great architect. And he had a great disciple, and his greatest disciple was Brahms. Brahms was a true disciple, such as any uh, man could be proud to have. If I had in architecture a disciple such as Brahms was, where Beethoven was concerned, I should be extremely happy. Frank Lloyd Wright never took on any disciples, and his father left him when he was 14 years old. He attended high school in Madison, Wisconsin, but there's no evidence of his graduation. He was admitted to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a special student in 1886, 
but he left without a degree. In 1887, Wright went to Chicago looking for work after the Great Chicago Fire, where he was hired as a draftsman. On June 1st of 1889, Frank Lloyd Wright marries his first wife, Catherine, and by 1893, now in his mid-20s, opens his own practice and begins planning. The thing comes to life in the plan because you can't make a plan without a sense of what the plan is for. And I think a plan is always beautiful, perhaps more beautiful than anything that ever comes afterward. Plan, the idea, is the plan. The plan contains the idea. Now, the house is an idea, if it's a good house. And that idea embraces all that composes, or will compose, the uh, usefulness and beauty of that house. It's right there in the plan. By 1901, Wright had completed about 50 projects, including many houses in Oak Park, Illinois. Four of those houses have been identified as the onset of the prairie style of architecture. Horizontal lines, flat roofs with broad overhanging eaves, windows grouped in horizontal bands, integration with the landscape, solid construction, craftsmanship, and a discipline in the use of ornament. Frank Lloyd Wright promoted an idea of organic architecture, the primary tenet of which was that a structure should look as if it naturally grew from the site. It's all a nature study, the building of a house. And when you proceed from generals to particulars, as you do when you are building, that's your natural gut, natural center line of your effort would be the, what is the natural thing? What is the nature of your materials? Even the nature of your client? The nature of the situation on which the house is built? Nature of the climate? And I suppose it would be the same in, in a great composition like Beethoven's Irwaka when he was celebrating the heroism of Napoleon and then toward the end of his effort began to feel that Napoleon, after all, was dead so far as his ideal was concerned, and a great sense of tragedy overcame him, and you feel it in the music. It's a great story, a great revelation of a man's worship and disillusionment. Frank Lloyd Wright's prairie houses also featured open floor plans, a prominent central chimney, built-in stylized cabinetry, and a wide use of natural materials, especially stone and wood. He was meticulous when choosing what materials he would use to build with. Well, those that are native, of course, are best, most appropriate, and the cheapest, most feasible. If there's stone in the neighborhood, we like to use stone. If there are kills and there is brick, and brick is characteristic, well, fire, Fire-built houses are good. And wood is always the friend of man. Don't you feel friendly to a tree when you see one? And if you don't see one, you're hungry for association with trees. Trees and human beings belong together. I don't think one could exist without the other, perhaps. If they could, it would be the tree that would survive. <laughs> When we return, the architecture, life, and philosophy of the greatest American architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, in his own words, here 
on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to the story of America's greatest architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, and what we try to do on this show, well, you're hearing it, anytime we get a chance, you get to hear from the human being, the person himself, and how lucky we are to hear the voice so beautifully and clearly from Frank Lloyd Wright himself. You see, early in life I had to choose between honest arrogance and uh, hypocritical humility. I chose honest arrogance and have seen no occasion to change. After establishing a solid reputation for building houses around the turn of the century, Frank Lloyd Wright left his wife and ran off with one of his clients' wives, Martha Borthwick. This was such a public spectacle at the time that the press hounded them relentlessly. He lost most of his clients and banks stopped loaning him money. To avoid scrutiny, Frank and Martha escaped to Europe for two years. Once public outcry had calmed, they returned to the United States and built Taliesin, the 600-acre estate near the village of Spring Green, Wisconsin. On August 15, 1914, while Wright was working in Chicago, a disgruntled servant set fire to the living quarters at Taliesin and murdered seven people with an axe as they fled from the burning structure. The dead included his mistress, Martha, and her two children. This marked the end of Frank Lloyd Wright's career for nearly 20 years. His first wife, Catherine, granted him a divorce in 1922 with the stipulation that Wright could not marry his latest lover, Maud Noel. They were married in 1923, but her addiction to morphine led to the failure of that marriage less than a year later. Wright would marry his third wife, Olga, in 1925. It would be another 10 years before Frank Lloyd Wright would make his triumphant comeback as the public forgot or forgave his transgressions. Falling Water is an extraordinary house designed in 1935 by Frank Lloyd Wright, built on top of a 30-foot waterfall. It is by far his most popular building and best exemplifies his philosophy of organic architecture, the harmonious union of art and nature. Located in the mountains of southwestern Pennsylvania, roughly 70 miles outside of Pittsburgh, it's listed among Smithsonian's life list of 28 places to visit before you die. The house was meant to complement its site while still competing with the drama of the falls and their endless sounds of crashing water. The power of the falls is always felt, not visually, but through sound, as the breaking water is constantly heard throughout the entire house. 30 million people must have seen falling water by now. But it was a very simple expression of uh, a man's love for that particular site, the music of the waterfall. 
And never before had I been given concrete and steel to build a building with. You see, when steel comes into your hand, you can pull on the building and you have what's called a cantilever. Now, the cantilever is this principle of tension. Your arm reaching out from your body and held by the sinews and muscles above, moving as you wish to move it as a cantilever. The trunk, of course, is a support that's in compression. But you can suspend from the end of the cantilever fabrications of any kind. So the new principle in architecture is this principle of the interior support, the extended slab, the arm, and the falling screen hanging to the slab. Now that's the structural synthesis of my own building. And it is essentially organic in itself. And that is falling water in principle. And the grammar of falling water, now we call the grammar of the building, the shapely means you use to, to uh, make the building manifest. Falling water is an architectural marvel, but it has a few major flaws. Its skylights leak, the waterfall promotes mold growth, and the builders didn't use enough reinforcing steel to support the first floor's concrete skeleton. Despite its flaws, falling water is a masterful work of art. The considerations that Wright would take into account before crafting such a milestone of architecture went far beyond the basic materials used to build a house. The nature of the site, like falling water. And next, the nature of the materials you have to use and the people you're going to work for and what it is they want to live in. And you have to have an eye on what they want to live for, too. I can't see any future in anything but an individual type of architecture. If the Declaration of Independence in America means anything, and democratic life means anything, that's practically what it means. You see, I was Italian in my uh, country home, lying on the bench, the Dutch door half closed below. Great curiosity existed, it was during a tragedy at Taliesin, and people came in droves to look around, and two women ranged up on a Sunday morning, looked all around into the living room, and old and odd, and how uh, beautiful this was, and how that was so interesting, and a pause. Finally, one of them said to the other, well, I wonder if I'd like living in a place like this as much as I'd like living in a regular home. Well, now that's the way it all began. They were, these things were strange. They weren't accustomed. They were accustomed to stuffiness and uh, a messy environment and things never going together, making a kind of commotion. And they didn't understand it and didn't want to understand it. They put it on like some old garment when they built a house without thinking. But now comes the uh, necessity for not just taste, but some knowledge. You have to know now, a little better and a little further along, what constitutes good proportion, harmony in building, great and beautiful environment. And it's a culture and a growth in itself of the soul. 
So the people who live in these advanced houses, I think that's what we can call them, must have a greater feeling for life. They must be more in themselves than the people who haven't arrived at that stage in their development. And once they have arrived there, they are liberated, they feel, and they see so much more than they ever saw before. They see the uh, liniments of nature, and as Blake would put it, uh, the liniments of gratified desire. The original estimated cost for building falling water was $35,000, but the total was closer to $155,000, approximately $2.7 million adjusted for inflation. The cost of restoring the house in 2001 was $11.5 million. Frank Lloyd Wright believed that his architecture and design had the ability to fundamentally change the lives of the people who lived in his buildings, and eventually would change the way society lived in harmony with nature. Good architecture creates good behavior. I believe now people are going to know what constitutes good architecture, good environment, and, of course, good living has to go with it. Good dressing, too. Good conduct, also. All these good things are dependent, more or less, one on the other and are assisting one another, more or less. Because you wouldn't dress in a loud and vulgar way in a quiet and beautiful room. Nor would you be so satisfied with tawdry jazz, perhaps, in a room that was beautifully conceived and had a lovely atmosphere and belonged where it was. It would seem more than ever discordant. So these things all match up as you go along and add up to something that we call culture. Isn't that it? That's what culture means. Wright believed that good architecture created good behavior, which would inevitably lead to a better culture. But this idea clashed with the status quo of his time, and to this day, that education creates the culture. Book smarts versus street smarts. Now, culture and education are two very different things as we practice them. Culture is the developing of the thing by way of itself. And education is informing, teaching, telling, pushing around the individual. So it's only by a natural growth that you can attain culture. But you can come back from a school all filled with, with stuffed with ideas and what we call conditioned instead of enlightened. Isn't that so? So education today doesn't mean culture. And today I think all these youngsters are educated far beyond their capacity and not cultured at all. So I say that education today is not even on speaking terms of what we should call culture. And we need culture more and education less. When we return, Frank Lloyd Wright, the rugged individualist, digs deeper into the clash between culture and education, quality over quantity, and his contempt of standardization. Right here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the life of Frank Lloyd Wright. And when we left off, Wright was making the distinction between culture and education. And by the way, does this still resonate today, folks? You bet you it does. You're all nodding as you're listening to him talk. Here's Jesse. Wright inspired and continues to inspire generations of young and upcoming architects through not just his works, but his ability to think and design in ways that weren't being taught in institutions of higher learning. How is originality cultivated when everyone is being taught to think the same way? I think all these young people in school now are hungry for something that they don't get or they wouldn't write to me. And I think also that it's an instinct of the higher nature. You see, you're only human as you rise above the animal. Your animal self is one fundamental factor or element in your life. Then when you come into the higher things that are not animal, the things of the spirit, then you get into this realm that we call art, and you begin to look for things that are creative rather than just uh, repetitive. And I think there's where you're in the realm of culture rather than education, because you can educate an animal. You've seen them do tricks, haven't you? Frank Lloyd Wright was outspoken, to say the least, about his disdain for the ever-increasing collectivist mentality that was rising in American culture during his lifetime. Standardization was not compatible with architecture or any other form of art as far as he was concerned. It was the individual, not the masses, which was the foundation for the American way of life. It's got to be an individual affair. It's got to be a slow affair. It's got to be a peculiar-to-you affair. Now, how are you going to do it with 20,000 students in a university? How are you going to do it with high schools crammed two stories, three stories high with a crowd of students? As a matter of fact, culture is not for the herd. Culture is not for the crowd. Culture is an individual thing. And that's what our forefathers struck when they decided and when they declared i mean that that uh, the individual is sovereign the sovereignty of the individual now that means a certain premium on aloneness to start with a certain uh, rejection of the common man as common but insisting on his privilege to be uncommon. And so that exists in every human soul today. And this is the country that we live in that declares it, the only one that has made it official, the only one that has made it constitutional to be yourself. (laughs) And we see abuses of it, of course, all down the line now. We We see ourselves all drifting back again drifting toward the commonplace, drifting toward the common man. And you hear it asserted that uh, that was what our country meant, that the common man was free to be common. Well, he wasn't. He was free to become uncommon. 
And that's the freedom that we ought to tote and talk about. And we should resent with all our strength this drift toward equalitarianism, which is commonness raised to the nth power. Wright was raging against the machine age, the era roughly between 1880 and 1945 that ran parallel with his own time on Earth. Life was getting faster. The steam engine was replaced with internal combustion and electric motors. Mass production of high-volume goods on assembly lines, including the automobile, were making life easier for average people. Radio and phonograph technology was making the world smaller as communication was being broadcast and distributed to the masses. Fast, long-distance travel by car, train, and aircraft was now attainable for nearly everyone. But this all came at a cost, according to Frank Lloyd Wright. The machine age could be used to create a new kind of beauty and higher way of living, or it could be exploited to create a cookie-cutter culture that would become detrimental to the individual. It's taken me all these years to learn that standardization is no bar to beauty. And the standardization can be controlled and the machine used as a tool to develop a beauty greater and more beneficent, more pervading, more all-embracing than anything we ever knew before. So that's what this age means. That's what the machine age should mean. But it's being exploited and uh, turned inside out, turned over wrong side up by all these opportunists and this desire for material uh, benefits and success. Same old story. There's nothing new in it. It's just as it always has been. It's only when it is conquered and we're, we're aware of this greater and finer way of life that we're truly Americans in the sense that we have a new country and a new ideal and we have a new, therefore, bound to have a new architecture. A new architecture is what Frank Lloyd Wright brought to the world. His buildings stand as monuments to rugged individualism at a time when standardization and mass production were the name of the game. Nothing represented standardization in architecture to Wright more than what he saw in big cities across the country and the world. In his mind, the future was in country living. Well, a city, of course, is a, is a thing of the past. There was a time during the Middle Ages when it was the only source of culture. There was no way of acquiring this thing we call culture except by direct contact. It isn't so now. It hasn't been so for many years. It wasn't even so when this country was founded, but of course it was more so. But gradually, all the, the development of all these sciences, the gifts of science to us, have made this crowding unnecessary. And it always was, after the Middle Ages, it always was a detriment. It never was any real asset to humanity. And especially when the emphasis now comes on the individual and the growth of the individual unit and the whole process of civilization dependent upon the quality of that individual, especially, we've got to give over this uh, crowd. We've got to get out of the crowd. 
We've got to be all the crowd there is ourselves in proportion as we desire it. Getting out of the crowd, standing out as an individual, pushing back against standardization, much like our founding fathers, these are the qualities that Wright wanted for himself and for our country. When we return, the life and philosophies of Frank Lloyd Wright continue with architecture as the mother of all art, here on Our American Stories. Everything we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for the newsletter, follow us on Facebook, or browse through our archives to hear us whenever and wherever you want, absolutely free. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we conclude the story of Frank Lloyd Wright, and what a joy, what a pleasure it is to hear from the man himself, the greatest architect in American history, I think there's no doubt, and it's as if he's speaking to us, as if he's here right now, and by the way, he's talking about things we're still talking about right now, aren't we? And that's what made Frank Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, we've heard him talk about art, architecture, culture, society, education, life itself, here again is Jesse with the last part of this story. American filmmaker and historian Ken Burns saw Frank Lloyd Wright as the greatest American architect of all time. In his documentary in The Life of Wright, Burns profiled his personality, egocentric and somewhat aggrandizing, and his talent, which was varied, original, and distinctive in this fascinating view of the architect who was an artist of the new. He is the prototypical American in every way. He's got a second act, which people have been saying we don't have. He, he has a third act. He's also the greatest American architect, without a doubt. His overweening ego notwithstanding, that is true. The legacy of the buildings are great. This roller coaster of a personal life makes the biography so interesting. And in the end, he is asking us not just to live and like his houses the way an artist might want you to like his paintings. He's asking you to rethink what a house is and how we live. Architecture is the most important art because it's working on us all the time. And we don't choose to go to it. It's there with us all the time. It's not like the ballet or the theater or the cinema or television. It's working on us now. And he's the only person I know who every moment of his life insisted that we wake up and that he was going to provide the tangible evidence of how we might 
rearrange our lives to live better and more organically. But living more organically, at least in Wright's mind, was incompatible with living in the city. He knew that there would always be those who would prefer the hustle of the big cities, but he was also anticipating a revolt that would occur when people awoke to the realization that there's more to life than Fifth Avenue. Some of us will always want to huddle. Some of us will always want to pig pile. Some of us will let us... That'll, that'll segregate the uh, sheep from the goats, so to speak. You can stay and huddle and pig pile if you want to. But when you feel yourself to be an individual and you feel this declaration of our freedom, when you get that into your system, you'll want to go out somewhere where you can be as alone occasionally and be yourself as you want to be and have the benefit of nature you see, the city now is a divorce from nature. It didn't used to be such a divorce from nature as it is now. But now it is a great divorce from nature. And there's no substitute. You see, quality, there used to be a big sign on the roadside. I used to say it, it was advertising a patent medicine, I think. So quality knows no substitute. But nothing truer was ever said. Now, quality cannot come from pig-piling and herding and trampling with the herd. There was a major rift between quality and quantity that Frank Lloyd Wright saw as directly influencing American exceptionalism. He also saw art and architecture as a way to retain the fundamentals of the human spirit that's necessary for a healthy culture. Quality is not compatible with quantity. Quantity can never be quality. No matter what the quantity is, there will always be in it the rising within of quality, see. And that is culture, and that is our country. That's what we've declared, that if you'd give this so-called common man a break equal to any other man's break, what was good in him, and the faith of democracy is that, that every man is good if he has a chance to be. He will be. Now, architecture gratifies that sense of the future, the uplift, the becoming. And, of course, all art should, more or less does. But architecture primarily is the basis of that and from it you get your painters and you get your sculptors and you get your craftspeople all desiring to make something suitable, fitting, uh, calculated to make human life happier. Gadgetry is intended to make it easier and does. <laughs> but without these other things of the spirit, these mechanical things, which we have so many of now, and so much of, that has given us a facility we don't know what to do with. All we can do now is to rush from here to there with some idea that we want to go somewhere. We want to go now. But what we get out of going isn't what's so important as it ought to be. 
It's statements like these that led some to believe at the time that Frank Lloyd Wright was some sort of disestablishmentarianist who simply wanted nothing more than to destroy the new way of living that the machine age had brought to society. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. As Wright saw it, science wasn't the answer to the pitfalls of society, but it could be used as the means to improve our culture if used properly. I think science has far outrun our capacity to take its gifts and use them with uh, proper profit to ourselves. I think science has now reached a point where we're on the brink by way of it, and we can destroy ourselves by one false step. Because science gave us things that we weren't yet ready to use, we didn't know how to use them properly. We don't know how to use speed. We don't know how to use uh, so many of the things science has given us yet. And the fact that we're crowding in cities shows it. Proves that we haven't learned anything. That we haven't really profited by what science has done. Science destroyed the city. Science has given us the basis for an organic architecture. It's science now that builds the building. And we call organic. But science as a tool, not as a master. Wright was both cynical and optimistic about the future as he saw it when this audio was recorded in 1956. That year, Elvis had entered the music charts for the first time with Heartbreak Hotel. Schools were desegregating. General Electric released the first alarm clock. President Eisenhower signed the Federal Aid Highway Act, creating the nation's freeway system. The first U-2 spy plane flew over the Soviet Union, the computer was invented by IBM, and the transatlantic telephone cable went online. Things are always either getting better or worse. They never stand still. Now, of course, I see great evidences in, in architecture. While much of it and most of it is imitative and not uh, really creative, still it's better than what we used to have. Still, there is an improvement all down the line. There is a raising a standard, I think, in the country. And I believe that we're on the way to a culture of our own. I think we're going to have it. And I don't think I'd be alive here today. I wouldn't have the uh, work I have at my time of life unless that was there. I think that perhaps I today am one of the best proofs you could have of the fact that we're going to have it. Otherwise, they'd have chucked me out long ago. Frank Lloyd Wright died on April 4th, 1959, after suffering from abdominal pain and complications from intestinal surgery at 91 years of age. But he continued designing and building his works of art up until his final breath. With over 1,000 structural designs, 532 of which were completed, he left behind a legacy that has inspired and will continue to inspire artists, architects, free thinkers, and rugged individualists alike for generations to come. In a world where standardization reigns supreme, Frank Lloyd Wright bucked the trend, threw caution to the wind, and unbashedly defied the logic and opinions of everyone else around him. He was the American spirit personified and remains a testament to the potential that lies in every person who dares to leave the herd mentality behind. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. It isn't up to us really to do anything 
except what we believe in ourselves. To be ourselves is the great privilege conferred upon us now. Of course, uh, without conscience, we can't belong to a society. If we were without conscience, and we had a, the idea of freedom that seems to activate most of these people, we'd land in jail very soon. So conscience and freedom are inalienable companions. One is because of the other, should be. And if it isn't, we're not going to be a success as a nation. And we're not going to have an architecture, we're not going to have anything. We'll crawl. We'll go back to the slam, I guess. And there you have it. Great job as always, Jesse. And if you like what you heard, go to ouramericannetwork.org and hear more. And by the way, send us, if you can, your best stories. We'll put them up on air. They're not all Frank Lloyd Wright. Some of them are about you and the remarkable things and beautiful things you do in your life. OurAmericanNetwork.org Frank Lloyd Wright's story, a uniquely American story, here on Our American Stories. <laughs>